welcome along to the COVID Care Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline West, and on this podcast, I chat to care providers who assisted a variety of vulnerable people during this time and with those who access these care services. The podcast is a part of the Tortoise Shack Network, and if you wish to support the work that the Shack does, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Today, my guests are two people with experience of living in direct provision services during the COVID lockdown in different parts of the country. So I'm speaking to Balani Mafako and Ola Mustafa. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. How are you keeping? No, thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi, thanks, uh, Caroline, for having us. I'm okay. We'll be catching that. Good, good. Yeah, it's it's a rainy, grey morning, but we'll we'll battle through. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, do you want to explain to the listeners a little bit about your individual circumstances? Balani, we might start with you. You're down in Limerick at the moment. Yeah, I'm on the border of Limerick and Clare. I have been in Nocleshin since uh, December 2017. And it's a basically a prefab buildings that were purpose-built to be used as a direct provision centre. Back in the 1950s, it was used as a refugee camp for Hungarian refugees. Um, and since then, it has been used for various purposes, including housing asylum seekers as a direct provision center. And it was in originally a military camp. Um, uh, so you can still see the foundations of a military camp. It's on the outskirts of uh, Limerick, uh, about 15 or 20 minutes uh, from Limerick city center. Um, there isn't public transport from here to town, so we have three buses in a day that take us into town. If you miss them, you're kind of stuffed for that day. Um, I live in a shared room with one other person, and I we then have a canteen because we can't cook. Um, so we all have to go in the canteen for our meal times, uh, breakfast between 8 to 10, lunch at one to two, uh, 12 to 2, and then dinner at 5 to 7. Um, but the capacity of the centre is about over 200. I think it was 250 at contracted capacity. They moved out some people uh, to one other centres to reduce overcrowding in the centre, um, to clear out uh, space for self-isolation if people need to self-isolate. But then they moved more people later on into the same blocks that was cleared. And so now it's still at capacity. So back to where we were before uh, COVID-19 and we still have COVID-19 and now they are rolling out COVID-19 testing. And we heard last night that uh, one of the centers that is built exactly like this one, it physically looks like this one, like the buildings look the same, the rooms look the same. It's operated by the same company. It's owned by the Irish government. Um, had an outbreak of COVID-19, and so people are quite worried um, oh, yeah, because some asylum seekers have gone back to work as well. Um, some are going back to college, children are going to school, and so they saw that um, mingling between people in general. Um, so a lot of people are worried. And, uh, yeah, justifiably so. Um, we'll come back to some of those points that you raised there. Um, Ola, you're up in Mayo, Oh, yeah. So my name is Ola and I live in the old convent in Balihonis and I'm a mom of three. And um, I, what is, I'm the founder of Balihonis Inclusion Project, which is a support group for asylum seekers across the country. And I volunteer for Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland, which is Massey. And that's where I met Bulilani. And um, I recently got a scholarship to uh, further my education in NUI Galway, which I'll be starting next week, Monday. And I'm an aspiring writer and um, I like motivating people, I like inspiring people. And my, the living condition here is quite different from what uh, Bolilani described. And I've said it over and over again that if you are going to say this system is what we have to offer, offer these people, at least let your standard be, let it, let it be the same. I have a house to myself. I, I live in a three-bedroom house with three of my children. I, do, I don't get to, sh to share. Or there are other people within the premises who shares uh, accommodation. I, I moved here two years ago uh, from the, main, the, the, the other side of, of the premises where I was sharing with uh, other families. So the houses would be built like in a building, there would be two families. There'll be a family upstairs and there'll be a family downstairs. But in the past, it used to house three, four, five families until the McMahon report came in 2015 and everything was 
it was downsized and now we have two families in in one house and they have a different space for for the single ladies and the and the single men so yeah okay so you, you've both got yeah different but similar experiences but that that overcrowding is something that has always been a part of direct provision but is especially talked about at the moment giving covid restrictions and Bilani, I know um you've put up some photos on twitter of, of some beds where people are sharing you know three four or five maybe sometimes more to one room and obviously in times of covid we're told to self um isolate and to social distance that's not obviously um achievable for a lot of asylum seekers yeah, it's not practical because in some cases you are told to keep two meters away from other people. But if your bed that you, the bedroom that you share with other strangers doesn't allow for that two meter distance um, and you all have different lives, you all go to work in different workplaces and um, you all speak different languages. There was one asylum seeker who had symptoms of COVID and couldn't speak English. Like, how are they going to speak with their roommates? Like, and so it sounds like it's very frustrating for the person who needs to explain. It's also frustrating for the people who need the, uh, the, to understand what is going on because they couldn't communicate um, and there was a lot of frustration there because of the language barrier. Um, and so there's an assumption that uh, the, the Irish government assumed that uh, uh, we are a household who treat us as a household, but actually we don't just put people in uh, different strangers from different parts of the world speak different languages, who have their own lives, who have nothing in common except that they all claimed asylum in this country, um, and then just expect them to get on with it. Um, that's not how life would work. Um, it would work like that in prison, but even in a prison reform program in Ireland, they are doing away with sharing of prison cells, They're trying to get prisoners their own uh, privacy. Um, as an asylum seeker in Ireland, you, you are very privileged if you have your own private bedroom. Um, you don't have, you don't get that. It's a luxury for asylum seekers. And so it's difficult to negotiate the sharing of, uh, it was difficult enough before COVID-19 to negotiate the sharing of the intimate living spaces like bedrooms, bathrooms, and uh, dining uh, areas. Like now I'm, I have to use communal bathrooms and communal showers, and we've been, had to use them for the past 19 years in operation. Um, they've been in use for the past 19 years since the center has been operating. So we add COVID-19 to that, it adds to the stress because the government is telling you this advice and your living situations actually don't, uh, your living circumstances don't allow for you to observe all the public health guidelines, which is very frustrating, um, especially when you read in the news that there are outbreaks of COVID-19 in direct provision and in some instances reoccurring outbreaks of COVID-19 because there was an outbreak firstly in uh, around April, May um, in Newbridge. Um, and again, the second time when the uh, Kildare had to be locked down, there was massive outbreak of COVID-19 in the very same center because the living conditions for people that did not change who are still required to share bedrooms, bathrooms and all the, the things you generally need in a household. And so it's very frustrating for people in direct provision. And understandably so. I know there was a report from the Irish Immigrant Council just recently published and they entitled it Powerless, which I think probably sums up a lot of the, the feelings that, that were around it. So this report says that 55% of respondents felt unsafe during the pandemic, 50% were unable to socially distance, 42% were sharing a bathroom, um, and of course 85% of respondents stated the daily living expenses of 38.80 was not enough to live on, and we're definitely aware of that, and 85% of respondents said that they felt they had, rec they had received enough information about COVID-19, but again that's not 100%. So would you agree would you would you agree with those facts and figures? It does seem uh, uh, to reflect a lot of the experiences of the people who conduct massive via text, via email, via phone calls 
who are worried. Um, we had parents now, you know, it's back to school. Um, parents needed assistance with back to school expenses because 3880 doesn't go far enough. Even with the 150 back to school allowance, it doesn't go far enough if you're not working. Um, and again, uh, I think all I will speak more about this, but parents who had to become teachers and homeschool their children had difficulty in some instances getting the necessary resources that are needed to uh, homeschool their children and they a lot of them didn't even have the privacy within which to do the homeschooling because in some instances you have a, 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 an entire family unit a family of five in one hotel bedroom and that is the only private space that they have and so if you're going to use that hotel as your playroom for your kids as your bedroom as your classroom and so it becomes very unbearable it's already unbearable enough before covid-19 now you add covid-19 the situation becomes much worse than that because once a child steps outside of that bedroom, they step into a communal area, and that's where they could pick up COVID-19. We saw children, um, I think at least two children that we know of in Masi, who were the only members of their family to test positive for COVID-19. They would have picked it up in the communal areas that they would all share in the canteen. And so it is, uh, 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 the report by the Irish Refugee Council does reflect uh, a lot of the things, issues that we've picked up when we uh, engaging with asylum seekers either via Zoom meetings or when we go in and uh, visit direct provision centres on outreach. And Ola, you definitely, I'm sure, have a lot of thoughts on that as a mom yourself. Yeah, yeah. I would just like to flash back to the, the, the living arrangement and stuff. It's quite different here with the way the way we live here in, in terms of the accommodation. But there are still people who share houses with, with people who work as care as caregivers, as as care workers. And what the Irish government did when, when we heard of the outbreak in Casabin was if you are working as a as a carer, you you can no longer stay there. We'll find an alternative uh, living space for you. And what they did was people who lived in Balihonis were asked to move to Kasuba, which is about 45 minutes away from uh, Balihonis. And um, they, they work in, most of them would work in the care home here in Balihonis. So if you are moving them 45 minutes away from where they from where they, they, they normally would just was just a walking distance. It was just like five minutes walk from from here. So if you're moving them to 45 minutes away, what's the guarantee that they, 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 the transport is not even regular? So what's the guarantee that they would be able to get to work on time and they would not eventually be fired? And so what they did was they had to they had to stop working. And they couldn't even get the pandemic unemployment payment. They had to go back to earning uh, living on their 38, 38 euros, and we have we have um, people who who were volunteering as well, and they couldn't they couldn't go anywhere. I was volunteering for Saint Vincent, and I couldn't go anywhere because no, nobody stopped me from going, but I was just being considered like I, I would be the only one going out there and coming back here, even though I live in in my own private space. People still looked at me like ah, Ola, you're the one that will bring this thing in here one day. You you keep going out. And it, it just it, it, the stigma around around that and the way we are being portrayed as carriers and spreaders of, of this disease, you had no choice than to just sit back and continue being being the the advanced uh prisoner or the privileged prisoner that, that you are. Yeah. And that's hard for adults, but especially for kids then as well, who may or may not understand what COVID-19 is and why we have to self-isolate and, you know, restrict movements as well. How did the children experience COVID being in direct provision? Uh, I think I, I tweeted about my, my kids not wanting to, to leave the premises and they left the premises for the first time in May. And I think it, that was in the middle of May. They just wouldn't step out of the house. I wanted them to play in the background. They, they didn't. They didn't want to. Oh, everywhere you turn to, it's always oh COVID and COVID. And I, was, I, as much as I tried to let them understand that this is this is not how this thing works. They just wouldn't have it. And we had we had um, we had the psychologists organize a kind of a talk uh, thing for different people in different different provision centers. And there were parents in the uh, provision center in in Galway. And it was the same thing that their kids were refusing to leave to leave the the center. They were unwilling to leave the room and go out. And that's that's just trauma 
for for those kids and you as the adult you're trying your, your best to stay sane and not let them feed off your your worry and your concern and they one way or the other get that they, they get that vibe and here we are now even now they are going to school and all the covid um measures put in place in the school they end up coming back and saying, "Ah, mommy, my my pencil fell on the floor and I I couldn't pick it because blah 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 blah." And it, it's just like, it's just too, too much. I know it's uh, people would say, "Oh, it, it's a general thing," but the effect that it has on your kid that is coming back to a congregated setting and your child that is going to a private space is very very it's very different, very different. Absolutely. And yeah, it's not an equal playing field. That's why I think those messages of we're all in this together don't actually incorporate, you know, Mm -hmm. the different realities that are there for kids and for parents and for non-parents as well. Um, Yeah, the the Massey statement that you released in April, I thought was quite powerful, like you called the government's action reckless, which... um, seems to be quite appropriate a word to use so they were saying that some of the measures that were put in place um one of the quotes so it's been shambolic putting a sticker on the floor in a tiny kitchen shared by 19 men who also have to share bedrooms and use communal toilets does not give asylum seekers assurance that they are protected so are these meant to be magical stickers that you know like <laughs> posters on the wall yeah. <laughs> no it was outrageous I, I, I they, they didn't change anything except for that that's just it's like we are take we are introducing measures measures to protect you and it's like okay what are those measures and then i had a look in our block it's like I saw stickers on the floor uh, marking uh, uh, with COVID-19 signs and keeping two meters apart. It's like, well, there's 19 of us on this part of the block and we all share this. And it's okay. And there's a communal shower that we all use and then there's a communal uh, 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 toilets that we all use. It's like, hmm, how are we going to keep two meters apart here? Like, because... Some of us work in essential services. By the way, they only moved healthcare workers out in direct provision. Other essential uh, service workers who were in direct provision, people working in retail, for instance, were still left in direct provision and still had to continue going to work and coming back to the center and so and share those um, intimate living spaces. And so I found that uh, the, the response was pathetic because it didn't address the key issues um, that people were experiencing in direct provision, particularly the ones raised by the report uh, that was released by the uh, Irish Refugee Council on COVID-19, people's experiences of COVID-19 in direct provision. And so it wasn't, uh, if you consider that when they uh, procured uh, additional accommodation, they got uh, hotels. Um, a few hotels that were uh, uh, hired by the Department of Justice to accommodate asylum seekers to move a few people out of the overcrowding cent- uh, overcrowded centers, but they still require those people to share bedrooms, bathrooms, and everything else, like dining halls. So you're kind of like taking people from a bedroom that was shared by, say, seven men, for instance, in one of the direct provision centers in uh, Ennis, there's a direct provision center where there were seven men in one bedroom. And they said, we'll reduce overcrowding here and take some of these men to travel lodge in Galway. But in travel lodge, they were still sharing bedrooms with strangers. They were still sharing bathrooms. They were still sharing dining uh, facilities. They had to go and get their food in the dining hall. I was like, what's the point? Like, you just you're not really responding to... <laughs> <laughs> where they all have to share again yeah. with other people. So what's, what's the point? And it's like, no, we'll have three to a room. But if you go back to the people who tested positive in direct provision, you will see that it wasn't, it was not just people sharing rooms, having their own private rooms. It was people who were sharing bedrooms with other strangers. Some were sharing with just one other person. Some were sharing with two other people. If you go to the first asylum seeker who tested positive in Galway, for instance, he was sharing a bedroom with two other strangers. If you go back to the one in uh, in, in, in Cork, it was a family, uh, a healthcare worker in Cork, who was a family living in a uh, uh, their own, they had their own bedroom, but they were sharing the communal kitchen with other families. And so 
in all of these circumstances, wherever people were sharing intimate living spaces, they were exposed to COVID-19 because they couldn't observe social distancing. Even the chief medical officer, uh, 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 Dr. Tony Hulan, said that it is impossible to observe social distancing when you are sharing uh, uh, private spaces like bedrooms, bathrooms, and, and all that with strangers. But the government still insisted that people will share uh, 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 those intimate spaces and observe social distancing. How do you tell a person to keep two meters away when the beds that uh, they have to share in direct provision and two meters apart. There were three lads who lived in a direct provision center in Newbridge with a recent outbreak um, in, in Kildare. And all three of them tested positive. When one was showing symptoms, the others had nowhere to go. Like they had, like they were there in the night, like where are they going to go? They couldn't go anywhere. And the, their beds went, uh, the, I mean, that room, the photo of the room will show you. It's, a, it's so cramped that there is barely space for them to put their clothes, um, all their belongings. Like. And so in that situation, it becomes very um, pathetic uh, for the government to say we are doing something here. But what they are doing is actually not very helpful. It That's feels why like we're they're just thing, yeah. leaving them to their fate kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, they're making a big deal in the media, especially as well, about rolling out um, testing now across provision centres. And it seems a little bit late considering this was announced not that long ago and we've had COVID since March, um, <laughs> February-ish. Um, so it, it seems to be a little bit too late. Um, Ola, has there been that the mass testing has been rolled out up in Mayo, do you think? Yeah, we, we've been tested twice now. And I, I think we, we were arguing about the letter uh, from the HSC yesterday with Bulilani. And I was like, okay, one third of these people came up for, for testing. So yeah, are you indirectly saying we are responsible for what is happening to us? Or, or what, what, what I, I, I don't get it. Like my, my daughter went for that, that testing and she literally crashed the whole day we were we were trying to console her to you know it's not something you just come this week and you poke somebody in the nose and you go and you come back in two weeks time and you you come back and poke me in the nose and and there's no change in my personal circumstances you can't leave me in the same spot subject me to the same the same uh, um, situation and expect a different a different outcome it doesn't it doesn't work that way I live in a, in a space where I, I I don't share spaces with people yet we had. We had people who tested positive here. We had someone who was moved from here to city where she was the only one that tested positive and she was staying in the, in the same house. She shared the house with a stranger who lived upstairs. She was there with her husband and, and three children. And she was the only one that tested positive in the whole of our, in the whole of our family. So you cannot leave people in a cramped space and, you know, expect, expect that, um, the COVID theory would not would not uh, would not would not come in, and the first person that tested positive, I think she she was working in a, in a nursing home as well, and she 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 shared the same house with somebody else, and they had to move her neighbor out, and let her self isolate in the house because she had she had four children with her, and there was no way she she could move from here to wherever they wanted her to move to, or she was unwilling to move, she didn't want to traumatize her children, so she she agreed to stay in, back in the, within the premises and they had her in the whole of the building and they moved they moved her, her neighbor out. And they both work in, in care homes. And it's just, um, it was a miracle that our neighbor and, and our own child didn't test uh, positive. So serial testing and still leaving people in congregated setting doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. It, it does not. But I have friends who are in Clondalkin and some of them were moved out to a different space. And now they are back to the rooms they left in the first instance. So what's what's the difference? There's no it doesn't it doesn't change anything. And so you you're just going to continue testing. And when they test positive, you move them out. And once the 14 days is over, you bring them back to to come back to where they, they left in the initial uh, the initial stage, which to me doesn't doesn't make any sense. I think that would add a whole extra layer of trauma because direct provision, you're living in limbo for a lot of it and it's very precarious. But then if you're having to move your kids for 14 days and then move them back again, like sure, there's a high risk of re-traumatizing those kids in that situation. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of us don't even want our children experiencing life outside the provision because you're bringing them back and they start asking questions. My kids went on holiday to my friend's place in Dundalk, and when they came back, it was it was just it, it was a crazy moment, and they started asking questions like, "Oh, so why did why don't we have a house that has the stairs? So why are we still here?" And I had to I had to lie to them that the person working on our application went on holidays, which we cannot go for. And she locked her office. She locked our files in her office. And when she comes back from her holidays and she opens her office, somebody would, uh, well, somebody would get our files then and then start working on it, which still didn't make sense to them. Cause uh, they, they say, oh, so why would she go on holidays and lock somebody's file in her office? That's not, that's being irresponsible. But that was that was the only excuse that I could that I, I could come up with. So you can imagine taking a, a kid out of the space that they, they, they they've been used to all their lives. And introducing them to a new space, and then bringing them back after 14 days to the same space where they left. It's just, just leave me and my, leave me and my life alone. This is what you want for me, and so just, just leave me here and let me, let me keep dealing with this until your somebody somewhere says so. Here, here, here is your papers. You can, you can move. Yeah, you can definitely see like that. It's, it's not sustainable to to live like that if you're constantly, you know, trying to self isolate and stuff like that. Um, Ambilani, then the testing then for yourself down in Limerick, did that roll out as a general service? It's still coming. We had one outbreak, uh, two uh, 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 reoccurring outbreaks of COVID-19 in the same centre in um, Hanratis in Limerick City Centre, and they will be doing testing in our centre, but the response has been poor because of the HSE's handling of COVID-19. We saw in Kahizivin where they blamed asylum seekers when they had uh, people testing positive and saying, you aren't social distancing. It's like, well, the beds they have to share, there's barely a metre between them. what do you mean social distancing? And they still have to go and share dining hall. They, they, so what do you mean that people aren't social distancing? It's impossible for them to do so. Um, and so that didn't inspire confidence. They also locked the gates in Kaiser. You saw a big picture of a gate with chain and padlock. Uh, with asylum seekers inside chanting, move us out. Um, when you saw that as an asylum seeker and you think, well, if people detect COVID-19 here, they'll just lock the gate in Oklashin too. And people aren't then encouraged to go out and test. There's not a lot of trust between uh, the community and authorities. There was poor uptake. Um, There was a sign-up sheet in reception and there was poor uptake. They keep writing to us to encourage us to go testing. I threw all the letters they sent me. I threw them in the bin because I don't give flying rats behind. I mean, how do you expect me to be safe from COVID-19 if you still leave me in the same conditions that don't allow me to observe all the public health guidelines. Like, what, I'm not an animal in a zoo, like where you just go and go and run in your tests whenever you damn well feel like it. This is my body and I need to protect this body. So if you don't give me the conditions uh, that allow me to be protected, to feel safe, how is uh, regular testing going to help me in any way? Because all it does is just give me a prick on my, my nose, not a prick, a shove a thing up my nose, and then they go in and then they do the test, the results come back. Whatever the results say, I will still be stuck here in the same old place, in the same old environment where I have to share intimate living spaces with people who have their own lives, some of whom are working. So even if I do not go anywhere and don't leave the place I stay here. There are people here who are working, who go out, they use public transport, they can still come back and bring COVID-19. Like, and so it's pointless to test people without changing their, their living environment. All we will be doing is going through this merry-go-round of testing and uh, lockdowns and this county on lockdown and another county on lockdown until the Irish state actually decides that they will ensure that everybody in this country feels safe and protected and take the appropriate action to make sure that that happens. Um, Otherwise, I don't see them uh, combating COVID-19. I think there will be another county with another outbreak. I think uh, Dublin, it's Dublin, there'll be another one. And you could have the whole country by before you know it, because schools are opening, people are going back to work, more people are going back to work. Um, And people generally will get tired 
um, of the lockdown. It's mental. It's mentally frustrating if you think life in limbo, in direct provision, being isolated for years and years is torturous. It, it's torturous too for people uh, uh, who don't have that experience um, as they are li- in their, uh, their course of their life for years and years to be asked to stay at home for six months, even if the reason is justifiable. You are, that's one of the reasons why you are seeing people say, uh, protesting against uh, uh, lockdown, not because they are foolish enough to believe the, the right wing, because people are generally frustrated and they need answers and they need assurances. They're not getting that assurances mm-hmm. from authorities. And so the only person that offers them hope is the fastest. And people turn up. And so a lot of people who claimed innocence, who went to the, the anti-lockdown rally and said, actually, we aren't uh, far-right people. We're just sick of this, just sick of, of the lockdown. People, I think those frustrations will grow um, if the government doesn't get its act together. Those frustrations will grow and more people will just get tired of complying with all the public health guidelines. Um, especially now that they are all in a hurry to reopen pubs and telling people, oh, have uh, uh, six visitors at home. Oh, if you're in a direct provision center, you have, can have your dinner with over 200 strangers. You can't even, there, there are no visitors allowed here. <laughs> they say friends of the center can visit, but your friends yeah. can visit you. That's yeah. Are the friends of the are the friends of the center immune from COVID? Are they immune from COVID? Are they immune to COVID? (laughs) Friends of the center, but my own friend cannot visit. Does that mean I fell from the sky? I I I don't get one rule for one and the other rule for for the other. You can see that like the frustration and the confusion and and like yeah again why are those people okay and not and um yeah like Lenny your point there about the mental health is a really important one because I think we're sleepwalking into a massive health mental health crisis in Ireland well we have been for for years for other things but (laughs) I think COVID-19 is really bringing that into um sharper focus and we don't have the services there to support people adequately with mental health in Ireland and of course like you said if if you're stuck in direct provision and you know a lot of people coming into direct provision have experienced a lot of trauma you know either getting to Ireland or in the place that they came from and that's that's why they're here and then when you compound that to being left in this powerless situation it just seems like an absolute recipe for a disaster it does. And then you have endless waiting lists to see psychologists. Yeah. Yeah. And you have people being served with deportation orders in the middle of a lockdown. And you say we are in this together. How are we in this together when you when you are bombarding their lives with all kinds of bad news? You're, you're sending me a message to go for testing today. And tomorrow you're sending me a deportation order. And the next day I have to deal with this kid who has to who I don't know if if he's going to be removed from the state today or is not going to be removed from the state tomorrow. And then I'm worrying about going to the canteen to to queue for my food and getting worried about, oh, if I miss lunch, then that's that's my, I have to go hungry till dinner. And if I miss dinner, I'm going to go hungry till the following day. It's just just like we say in my country, it's like a pot of beans, a pot of messy beans, if I I may even put it that way. It's, It's hard. It is hard. And that feeling of being powerless as well, like if you had money and status and access to resources, then you could afford therapists and you wouldn't have to wait for one or two years to see psychologists. And um, yeah, you're, you're not, there's not a whole lot of therapy you can buy on 38 euro, 80 cent a week. Yeah, no, it doesn't go that far enough. There was one time I needed to go to the regional hospital, like, and the 3880 wouldn't even come. <laughs> the travel fare to the regional hospital. I had to go to the social protection office to give me money to travel to the regional hospital. So you can imagine how difficult it is. Like, you literally take that 3880. I was sitting, uh, uh, one of my friends in, uh, in Tesco, who bumped into uh, each other in Tesco, and I was literally counting money, like coins. I've never had to live like that. Like, even at my poorest in my country, I've never had to literally look at the price tag of a grocery item or toiletries in a store and then look at how much I had in my wallet. I've never done that. Even when I was working, when I was, all I did was just go to a store, pick up what I needed, go to the tills and pay for it. I never had to think 
about how much coins I've got. And it led to literally count coins to say, now, I, oh yeah, I have 220, I can afford this. I've never had to do that. And so uh, the 3880 has brought to, uh, uh, with COVID-19 has brought into sharp focus the very uh, uh, petty ticker box kind of allowance, like uh, the T-shirt or the former T-shirt, uh, Leo Veralka said, uh, we give them pocket money. It's like, well, it is pocket money. What are you going to buy with it? What are you going to do with it? Like, <laughs> and it, like, yeah, the response from the government has been one that really prioritizes humanity, I suppose, is a very polite yeah. way of saying that. Um, Ola, just to go back to your point there, you said the deportations were still continuing during lockdown. Yes, yes, people are still being served with deportation orders. Yeah, despite despite the lockdown, and funny enough, these offices we we hear are not they are not processing GNIB cards and immigration renewals and stuff. Yes, there is there is a, a a space in that office where deportation orders are still being printed and sent to people. That's it's awful. It it it, it is it is terrible. If at the end of the day, the, 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 those re- deportation orders will paraventure be revoked, the, the kind of trauma and the fear and and all that that that, that you already instilled in that person, it will never go away. It will never go away. I'm looking at um at um Bernie's uh, petition the other day. How 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 can you? as a human, serve somebody who has been in this country for 14 years with a deportation order. And then you you, you, you write back to them to say um, your deportation order is still is still in effect, but because of the lockdown, we are we are pushing it to this date. That's it's it's mental, it's insane. I don't I don't know how, how she does it. I don't know how she manages to stay to stay sane, but I, I don't know if, if there's anyone out there that would be able to deal deal with worrying about pandemic and worrying about your, your partner being removed at, at any time. It's, yeah. it's in me. Like a, a lot of people for the start of lockdown were like, this is great. We're going to pick up a new hobby. And everyone's talking about making bread and what was it? Banana bread. So everyone's making mm-hmm. them what the new Netflix show was. And then you have people who are worried about being deported after 14 years. So it, you can see a very stark difference between experiences of lockdown. Yeah. And, and, and it's and it is hypocritical of the Irish state to be busy uh, serving people with deportation orders. Just before they locked down they, uh, the, pan- the, the, the pandemic, they deported a 10-year-old child who was born and raised here, um, who was sent to Nigeria. He's never been to Nigeria all his life. He was born and raised in Ireland, and he was deported uh, to Nigeria. And so, But in March every year, Irish politicians will travel to the United States with a bowl of shampoo begging U.S. politicians to regularize undocumented uh, uh, Irish migrants. Um, and yet here they are busy uh, serving people with deportation orders, people who have known Ireland to be the uh, and only Ireland to be their home. Um, I found it deeply hypocritical that the Irish state would be busy doing that and cruel that they would be busy doing that in uh, in the time of the pandemic. They, they are very slow when it comes to issuing you with a decision to uh, uh, to grant you protection. If you're applying for asylum, it will take, yes. I mean, I waited 16 months just to have my first interview to assess my asylum claim, uh, 16 months. But if for any reason I do not submit appeals uh, uh, document or I don't have any pending application, within a few days, I would get a letter from the same department telling me that I need to leave the country. So they are very quick to tell you to get out of the country, but they're very slow, painfully slow to tell you uh, that you can stay in the country. Um, And I find that deeply uh, 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 troubling for a country that goes around the world where diplomats and politicians preach about human rights. Well, you have people here stuck in limbo, stripped of their dignity and the right to privacy and general right to pursue happiness. Yeah, very hypocritical. And I think I even saw last week that it was probably Leo again had said that we will see about going to Washington next March. And uh, that's really important that we try and make that happen. So they're already planning. How far away is March? The next one. Six months, yeah. I think. Um, you know, and, and yet they're currently actively serving deportation orders on people who are here. So that really prioritizes or it shows you their their priorities, which is um 
disgusting. And I, 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 I keep tweeting about these times and times and times again. I think the Irish government doesn't, they don't see asylum seekers as humans. They see us as uh, these charity cases who, who ended up here by virtue of our, our benevolence. So whatever it is we offer them, they, they need they need to take it like that. That's that's the people will still no matter how harsh, how harsh or how hard life is in the reprovision, people will still go in search of safety, they still go in search of security and stability in their lives. So intentionally or deliberately subjecting people to inhumane treatment all in the name of it will serve as a deterrent to to others from coming to Ireland. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. You cannot strip people of their, of their entire essence. It bounces back on you. Because at the end of the day, most of these people will end up getting their papers. But they've been traumatized. They've been rendered redundant. They've been rendered, they, they are a shadow of themselves. And then they go out there and you want them to go out there and function in a workplace. I, I, I have a BSc degree from my country. I have all kinds of certificate courses that I've done in Ireland. Yet I can't work. I'm starting my master's next week. I cannot work because somebody somewhere says she has been disskilled, and so we don't think she might be able to function in a workspace, which to me doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. If tomorrow I get my papers, where am I going to start from? Am I going to go to the Bulilani and say, oh, you've gone, you've gone for all kind of interviews now. Can you give me interview tips? Or who, who, who picks up my, my life? Who, who helps me to get started on my life? I have my next door neighbor who's been here for 10 years. Our kids literally grew up here. Who is going to employ her? She's in her late 40s now. Who, who, what, what, what kind of uh, work experience does she have? Nothing, none. So I think it's high time that the Irish government starts seeing people for whom they are and not just some charity cases who we have no choice than to deal with them kind of um, a thing and get see people for you know for whom who they have i think that level of distrust really came through with the news during the summer that the irish government was monitoring your tweets uh, the tweets of massey and your individual <laughs> tweets and had compiled a document detailing the tweets about direct provision and uh, any criticism of it, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and, and including the tweets of people who weren't in yeah, that, um, that tweet came in, in in the middle of me going back and forth with my going back and forth with my my solicitor because I got tired of sitting and not hearing anything, and I I I I, I was arguing with uh, we were emailing each other back and forth, and she was like, oh, we got you through this, we got you through that, we got you this, and we got you that, and how dare you say there's no there's been no steps taken in your case and blah blah blah. And then I go on Twitter to go in a rant about her behavior towards me or her response to my email. And I open it and I see, boom, oh my goodness. And I, oh my God, that's it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm dead. I'm done for. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. I, I, and I, I called my sister back home. Like, what is somebody back in Africa going to do for me here? And she says, oh, you need to log out of that account. You need to shut down your account and blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, okay, let's, let's see how this goes now. I think that further shows you that level of intimidation that we have to endure in the ends of everyone that is involved in this system of jail provision center. You you walk into to the cafeteria and somebody saying, this is what I have for you and you have to eat it or you go hungry. Or there's somebody somewhere telling you you have to sign and on the day that you don't go to sign, you get a letter saying your room will be reallocated to somebody else. There's all everywhere you turn to, there's that constant reminder that your life is not perfect and you, you don't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are or what, what you're bringing into this country. The fact that you're an asylum seeker, you just have to sit your, sit your ass where you're kept and, and don't go looking into what doesn't concern you, so to say. Bolani, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that as well. I, I found it deeply uh, pathetic that the state would have some self-respecting bureaucrat to sit in an office in the middle of a pandemic, pay the money, sit in the office, um, scroll through our tweets and uh, save them, store them. And actually, I would say it's a breach of our right to privacy because one, I never gave the Department of Justice consent to store any of my tweets. When I signed up for Twitter, I gave Twitter consent to store my tweets, but they never, the Department of Justice never asked me for consent to store my tweet. I thought it would be very, would condemn it in the strongest terms 
if it was an African dictator doing that, um, storing uh, uh, tweets and monitoring dissent online, because we generally expect some sinister behavior that's going to come out of that. And so what is the purpose? What is the point of them uh, uh, storing? Because all they were storing was just criticism of trajectory. You can see the tone and the language used in the analysis of the the, uh, the, the, the tweets um, but actually they're not interested in uh, uh, in improving services as they claim but they're just interested in the dissent who is talking to who who is really and so they're trying to map the dissent their opposition in order to be able to what quash it I don't know, but they, I find it appalling that they would invest so much resources into that. And I read recently that the minister has, uh, 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 she made a statement in parliament saying that they've stopped monitoring our tweets, but I've asked the Data Protection Commission to investigate a, pre- a breach um, of uh, data protection because I never gave them my consent to be storing my tweets and I'm, I found it very creepy that they, uh, they somebody in a government office being paid to um, read and save and store my, my tweets and document them in word uh, format. Absolutely. And, and they were not just, if, if, they, if they were storing the tweets just, just to improve services, that will be understandable. But what is the essence of you counting how many times Ulilani's tweet has been retweeted and how many likes the, the likes, yeah. how many likes <laughs> the, the tweets got? It's it's just it, I I don't think there's nothing sinister about it. There's there's an ulterior motive behind behind them no. doing that. No. I think uh, speaking of ulterior motives and sinister motives, um, I noticed that you were very active tweeting about when the far right organized protests down on the keys um around covid restrictions they actually had someone speaking there who reviewed asylum um cases is that correct and and you've been very uh, active in lobbying the government to say what is going on with that yeah, that that's a freaky one because uh, miss unamakwak she is a member of the international protection appeals tribunal so when you apply for asylum you will be interviewed by the International Protection Office, they will make a recommendation to the minister that you should or should not be granted protection. So you could either be granted refugee status, subsidiary protection, permission to remain one of the three, or none of the three. And if you are granted none of the three, if you are refused refugee status and subsidiary protection, you have a right to lodge an appeal. And you appeal that uh, refusal through the to the international protection uh, appeals tribunal the tribunal will assign one member to assess your cases so it's a de novo hearing will hear the case again by an independent person you go in and they'll interview you they will assess your submissions your written submissions that your lawyers would have made a sub questionnaire that you it's about 60 pages questionnaire that every asylum seeker has to complete in english um, it's available in some languages but not all the languages that we we'll have um, and then they would uh, make a recommendation to the minister on whether or not to uphold the decision by the International Protection Office or quash it and make a new decision, uh, which would be to grant you protection. So you have a person there who makes life and death decisions on asylum seekers, who decides whether an asylum seeker can stay in the country or should be deported and returned to their own country um, if failing the, the, the protection application. Ms. Unamagwag, of course, then we found out subsequently that she is a supporter of the Irish Freedom Party, who are an anti-migrant political party. They don't want migrants in the country. She supports uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories, including uh, anti-5G. And she also sits in the mental health tribunal. So how do you have such a person associating with such views, holding such views about migrants, expected to adjudicate uh, appeals to make a decision on an asylum claim for a migrant when she's clearly expressed 
anti-migrant attitudes by associating with an anti-migrant group. How do we trust? There is a guidelines there, uh, a code of conduct for all the tribunal members that they all had to adhere to, and they have to ensure that there is no bias in the uh, uh, in the cases. And so we are reading currently some of her decisions um, that she has made. Um, in the tribunal, and she she's not very nice to survivors of torture, women who survive torture, particularly women of African descent. Um, so I, I don't know what the reading will uh, will reveal in the end, but I'm still reading some of her decisions, and she is not very uh, nice. Like some of the the decisions are, are shocking. Uh, on uh, survivors of sexual violence and survivors of torture. Uh, I read one about uh, a woman from Zimbabwe. It's like, well, we, we don't believe that you were tortured, uh, and men as well. We don't believe that you were tortured because your mother didn't uh, take you to a hospital. Um, was it your mother or father? They didn't take you to a hospital. Like in, in Zimbabwe, people get abducted, people get killed and finished off in hospitals. Like... And you want the person to trust authorities. Somebody who's persecuted by authorities, you want them to trust authorities and go ask them for help. Like, I didn't find that uh, 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 her remarks um, at all relevant to asylum seekers when she was speaking there, but her presence in that rally um, and her association with the Irish Freedom uh, Party certainly is disturbing considering the position she holds in the International Protection Appeals Tribunal and in the Mental Health Tribunal, because even that too makes serious life uh, altering decisions for people. I don't think we'd want to be trusting people who believe in um, conspiracies on 5G to be making decisions on our mental health. For sure. And Ola, I've seen you nodding away furiously during that. It's just, I, I don't know, it just, it just brings back a whole lot of, um, a whole a lot of, a, a bitter pill to, to, to swallow because she's not the only one who, who, um, undoes, um, applications like that. I've been going through some of the submissions from, from the Department of Justice regarding my case and I just, it just blows my mind away like, oh my goodness. So, and even right there in the office when I was being interviewed, the, 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 my interviewer was saying, I don't believe you were, you were abused. I don't believe someone like you can be abused. Who are you to tell me or make light of my experience? You, you are not me. This is me sharing my experience with you. You don't believe that. But the Irish government sent me to the adult mental health uh, services. And I have, I have, I've, I've been in and out of therapy for a while. Yet you don't believe my experience. So who, who, whose report will I believe that that person offering me therapy and counseling sessions is just doing it just to, just to get money off the Irish government or you, who to me has been trained to just find just one tiny tiny flimsy excuse to just make sure that you don't grant this person this uh, protection that she needs because she, she's obviously going to get, uh, uh, cost us a whole lot of money if she's granted granted this. So just make sure she's refused and then she spends the rest of her life fighting or appealing and all that. I've been here for six years now. I don't even, I don't know where I stand. I I, I, actually, I don't know. And people have asked me, Ola, you speak a lot, you do a lot, you do this, you do that. Why are you still in direct provision? I, I, I don't know. And I asked Willie Lani the same question as well. Why are you still here? And I asked Donna as well. Why are you still here? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. That, that that sense of limbo and, and frustration is coming through very, very clearly and the sense of powerlessness against people who may not have the best intentions, but you're forced to deal with them when, when, when you're, you know, accessing these services. Um, from from those experiences, if we are to go into another lockdown, do you think that there have been lessons learned from the, the lockdown we're just we're just coming out of like how do we move forward living with covid and having to live in direct provision at the same time i think government's attitude needs to change first quit putting the blames on vulnerable people people who don't even they don't even have control over what they eat how much more making a decision on on their own on their own lives they need to they need to put forward a, 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 an impressive or a kind of a positive attitude towards people who are in direct provision. And secondly, 
our stand still remains. We don't want this system of deprivation anymore. We don't want people living in, in congregated settings. We don't want five, six, seven men living in the same space. We don't want you taking people to city west, isolating them for 14 days, and then returning them back to where you brought them out from. It just doesn't make sense. There has to be there has to be positive steps taken to ensuring that people are well accommodated and not just left in, in, in a space where they have to share communal bathroom. I've visited people in, in spaces where they can't even use the toilet. They they had potties in their rooms where they, they, they do their thing in their potties and then turn it into the, into the toilet. It's, it, 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 it does, it, it's so baffling. Like you, you don't see all these things, but when you come out here and you say, it, people look at you like, I wasn't aware that this is going on. But, but at the end of the day, what is government doing about that? It doesn't have to do with, if you test us from now till next year and our personal circumstances still doesn't change, then the test is, is useless. There has to be, and, and this rule for one person and the other set of rules for the other person, stop quit, uh, friends of the center can visit, but my friend cannot visit and, and stuff like that. I, I, am, I am more concerned about people working here because they go to their houses. I don't know their lifestyle out there, but I, I know I'm here locked behind this gate 24 seven. I don't go anywhere. I know my own lifestyle, but that person who I'm going out there now to queue in the shop to get my grocery. I don't, I don't know where she went last night when, when she left this premises. So the attitude needs to change and government needs to start listening. They, start, they need to start listening and stop being authoritative when it comes to making decisions uh, concerning. We are adults. We are not, we are not minors. We are not underage. They, they, they have to be, there has to be kind of uh, a space or a forum where we can dialogue and not just say, bam, this is what we have to offer. You either, you either take it or you take it. You have no, you have no alternative. Uh, they, they, they certainly do need to change their attitude to the whole asylum uh, uh, system, the, the way they handle uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also they need to ensure that there is equality in the treatment of vulnerable people in the state, whoever you are. If you are dependent on the state for your accommodation, they need to ensure that there is parity in how people are treated. We saw the Dublin Regional Homeless Services uh, uh, Executive, sorry, uh, uh, looking for accommodation to ensure that to give uh, homeless people uh, independent and uh, self-contained units where people could observe all the public health guidelines. We didn't see the same measure being taken by the Department of Justice to ensure that asylum seekers have self-contained units. That was one of the first asks that last year, uh, the first concerns that we raised even before the lockdown, we made public statement that they should ensure that as a single asylum seekers are given single rooms and families are given self-contained units to avoid all that sharing of private intimate living spaces to minimize the, 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 the risk of COVID-19 spreading. They didn't do none of that. And it's not impossible for the Irish state to do. These are things that are doable. Um, the Dublin Regional uh, Homeless Executive shows us that it can be done if you have the political will to do so and the commitment to do so. But they didn't do it for asylum seekers because they don't care about asylum seekers. They first flatly refused. The, the, the Deputy Secretary General in the Department of Justice said it's not within our gift to do so, um, to give people single rooms and self-contained units. And so all we had at that point was we'll, we don't care about you. You are stuck here. You just have to make do with it. If you get COVID-19, uh, tough. Um, if you die, unfortunate, sorry. Um, if you make it, yay, happy, happy days. But um, nobody cares, um, and we need to change that attitude. Um, we saw there is a discriminatory response when it came to the pandemic. Unemployment asylum seekers who lost their jobs for months were denied access to the pandemic unemployment payment, um, which meant that asylum seekers who were working were very fearful of losing their jobs. They didn't want any testing um, because if they had tested positive, that would have meant that they couldn't go to work. And we saw employers discriminating against uh, people living in direct provision when the news broke out that some direct provision centers had outbreaks of COVID-19. Some employers refused to employ people in direct provision. Some refused to renew um, contracts for people who are already uh, working because they live in direct provision centers. So we need to change the whole society 
um, we need to change how society views asylum uh, seekers and to view people as human beings with the same needs as everybody else, the need for shelter, the need for protection, the need for sanctuary um, that all of us would have um, and start treating people with some decency. I mean, I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think any of those are, are unreasonable demands. Um, we might finish up on, on that note. Um, where can people get involved to help support you? So there's obviously Massey, which is the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland. Do you have a website? www.massey.ie um, and you can follow uh, you'll be able to subscribe to our updates on the website so every time we post something we you would get a notification via email we are not organizing uh, massive events yet um, because of COVID-19 restrictions but when we do organize we'll be posting those on the website and on the uh, uh, social networks, both uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We would post regular updates there when we are organizing uh, events. We will certainly be having a protest and a conference after this pandemic. And we will uh, we regularly make calls for action on uh, on things that we need to get done. And so people would be, uh, uh, if they stay in touch, they'll be able to pick those up and respond appropriately where they need to be. Brilliant. And, and the Department of Justice can monitor those events all they like. <laughs> They're still going to happen. So, um, thank you to both of you for, for chatting with me today. Um, you know, I learned a lot and I hope other people that are listening really learned a lot about the realities of what your situation was like and is like and hopefully will not be like in the future if the government decides to adopt the humanitarian approach um, as a basic. That would be it. Um, thank you both so, so much for your time today. I really appreciate thank it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Carol. Thanks. Um, thanks. Thanks to all my listeners as well for tuning in. You can rate and review over on Apple or follow on Spotify. Um, you can follow along on Twitter. It's the hashtag COVIDCarePodcast. And if you want to drop me a line, it's hello, it's Caroline West at gmail.com. Thank you so much.